Well, uh, before I get started here, I want to, or as I get started here, I first want to say thank you again for uh, last month. October is Pastoral Appreciation Month, and so uh, many of you gave us cards and gifts and gift cards, and man, uh, we feel so, so blessed. So thank you for those of you that were able to do that. Um, It does not go unnoticed and is greatly appreciated. So last week uh, was a great week, fun week for me. I haven't baptized one of my own kids before, and so um, that was just a fun time to be able to share with, with many of you, with our church family. And we were shocked. We kind of put out a text <clears throat> um, really like the day before to some of our friends. Some, some of, we have a friend group in Bellingham where we used to live, and um, <laughs> one of them just decided on Sunday, so Saturday night to Sunday morning, they're like, yeah, let's go. And so it was fun to look out last Sunday and, and see the Smiths, like, what are you doing here? You're 100 miles from home. But they just wanted to show up and support us. And lots of people from around town and from Mark's life, um, we felt really, really blessed as a family. And the chili, holy cow. I couldn't believe how many different kinds there was. That was like, we almost didn't have room for it all on the lodges uh, uh I don't know, serving bar, I guess is what you'd call that. But it was really, really fun to just get to do that together. And so thanks for, for making that happen. Well, we continue on, or actually kind of are, are about wrapping up. Not, last week is going to be the last message in this current series that we were in called The Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven. And then at the opening of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7, is a compilation of Jesus' most famous and most powerful, really, teachings. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. In the start of the Sermon on the Mount, there's this section called the Beatitudes. That's what we've named it. Jesus didn't call it that. But Jesus crafted it very carefully. It would have been done for maximum impact and easy memorization on his part. And so Jesus climbed the side of a mountain, we learn in Matthew chapter 5, sits down with his disciples and begins teaching them. And he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in the preceding weeks, we've talked about these Beatitudes. They aren't exactly a list of ideals that you and I must conform to if we want to be a Christian. They're not necessarily how to enter heaven, but they're really about a who. A who's ready to receive the kingdom of heaven. Who's becoming a kingdom person? Who is the gospel taking root? And while working on this message this last week, I was writing in the first, you know, iteration here, I I, I wrote this. I said, you know, none of these beatitudes are normal, normal human qualities. They're ones that grow in us when we intentionally start over with Jesus. And I thought about that statement. None of these beatitudes are normal human qualities. And then I thought, you know, that's not exactly it. These are kind of what make us human. If we're made in God's image, and this is who God is, then we reflect that, or, or, or we can reflect that. And God's a God who cares about those who mourn. He wants to comfort them. 
Um, we as his people lament and broken what's broken in this world. We want to be cement, uh, surrendered to him. We want to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is another way of saying justice. It has to do with being related rightly with those in our circle. And you go on and on and down the list. These are human qualities. It's just that they often kind of lie dormant inside of us because we, needs, we need God's spirit to revive them inside. And so we come to kind of the culmination of these Beatitudes. And Jesus tells his disciples that they're blessed when they experience persecution, that they should even expect it. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to even press home the point in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, I admit, probably many of us would admit that that's a little bit of a surprise ending, isn't it? I mean, in the first place, there's, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in here that in our 21st century ears, we kind of have to figure out what exactly do you mean here, Jesus? But then you arrive at this, blessed are you who are persecuted. Um, they kind of warn us that Christians should expect persecution, especially if they seek righteousness and justice. But this seems unusual to us because usually in our world, the better a person is, the less trouble they have, right? You kind of don't make waves, kind of just fit in and go with the flow and things are going to go well with you. And then Jesus says, well, following me could be really, really, really unpopular. Glenn Stassen, he's a Bible scholar. He wrote a book on kingdom ethics and he said, these beatitudes or these last two beatitudes warn us realistically that the world is full of sin and will not always welcome our good news. And persecution is a big word. It's one of those words I was trying to think, have I ever actually used that in a sentence or written that in any context? I don't know that I have. And when I get to this part of the beatitudes, I just imagine Jesus addressing like a group of his disciples you know, it's like they're incoming freshmen. And he says, even though you were the big women and men on campus last year in middle school, now you've entered the wide, wide world of high school, right? And people are going to mess with you just because you're freshmen. Jesus is telling his disciples, expect people to not take you seriously, to make assumptions about you, incorrect assumptions, to pick on you, take advantage of you even, maybe even bully you just because you're a Christian. Really? Is that so, Jesus? Persecution is one of those words, uh, I was talking with Phil this last week, I wouldn't use it lightly. In fact, sometimes I wonder, have I ever experienced that myself? I mean, exactly what is persecution? There's definitely a subjective kind of moving target nature to it. You know, maybe what feels like persecution to one person is just a really bad day for another person. I don't know. But it seems like persecution happens to people maybe in degrees. 
You know, being misunderstood is kind of one thing. I'm not sure I'd call that persecution. Being bullied is definitely on another level. But persecuted seems like it's even above that. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, in the original Greek that the Bible was written in or written down in, uh, this passage or this word carries the meaning of pursuit. Like literally what this Greek word that we translate into persecution, the most basic meaning has to do with um, with pursuit or being chased after, or you might run after someone, or you would drive them away. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's used to describe uh, soldiers, like the hostile pursuit of, of soldiers coming after you. you. You just imagine like David running away from Saul, like he can feel this pursuit that's right behind him and they are out to get him. But then it, it kind of shifts a little bit. In the Psalms, the same word group is used, and it usually refers to circumstances and people that cause the psalmist, the person writing, it refers to circumstances and people that cause suffering. And so you start to see this kind of range of meaning that's involved here. Uh, it's someone or something is coming after you with hostile intentions. And that's pretty nerve-wracking, isn't it? It's not just a physical threat to your person or body. There's an emotional toll that this takes on people. And the net result of this pursuit, this coming after, this driving away, persecution, it's really suffering. So if you've never been singled out, if you've never been mistreated, just because of who you are or what you look like or whatever, it could be really, really hard to relate to what Jesus says here or even believe that stuff like this actually happens. I mean, it's hard to believe unless you've been, you've lived or spent time in where you weren't part of the dominant culture or in our world, you know, like if you're a minority, you probably experience this or understand this at a much deeper level than someone like me. But of course, all of us are aware that when it comes to religious persecution, that's alive and well in our world. In fact, it happens every day. It's not just for Christians, it's many other religions too. I spent some time this week looking at Pew Research. They track a lot of stuff, uh, not just politics, which is where I probably got off on this tangent, was, oh, I was clicking through, clicking through. And I got into this um, uh, religious harassment research that they've done. And when they talk about religious harassment, I mean, it's like the word persecution. It, it, it spans this enormous range. It could be verbal intimidation all the way to like, like murder and death and everything in between. You know, are you facing religious harassment? And so they track this regularly around the world. And the most recent numbers I could find are from 2018. And it was kind of taking a look at the last 10 years. And religious harassment, as they've tracked it around the world, increased dramatically during that decade. Any guess as to which religious faith is the most harassed? It's Christians. Uh, 145 out of 195 countries 
Um, Muslims would be a very close second, and you might go, oh, well, that's because they're the most populous or there's the most people following those religions around the world. That may be. But we know there's also more to that story, too. Uh, The least harassed group of religious faith is the Buddhists. I guess everybody likes the Buddhists. I don't know what that means. When you think about this, the most harassed religiously around the world today, is this fulfillment of Jesus' words 2,000 years ago? Or is it more of a self-fulfilling prophecy on the part of Christians? I think if you ask the average person in Seattle area if Christians are persecuted, I'm, I'm kind of thinking they would just do what I said. They're like, no, they're not persecuted. You're the most dominant in our area. How could you be persecuted? In fact, they probably might say Christians are the ones doing the harassment and the persecution. But that kind of fits. Not because it's true. It fits the perception that in the United States, that in the Western world, where Christianity is the dominant religion, that persecution of Christians is impossible. So for those of you that consider yourself a Christian, is that true for you? Have you ever felt like someone's out to get you simply because you follow Jesus, because of your beliefs in him? Have you ever been singled out, not taken seriously, taken advantage of, bullied, or worse because of your faith in Christ? Do you ever feel like you've suffered because of your loyalty to Jesus or just simply stood out because of it? I think most North American Christians would shake their head, yes. And uh, if you talk to Christians outside of North America, in the far-flung places of the globe where Christianity isn't popular and maybe even some cases illegal, they would loudly or uh, adamantly shake their head, yes, yes. Now, do I personally feel that my life has ever been in danger because of my faith? No. But even at lo- the lower levels of persecution, I don't necessarily like to stick out. In fact, I would like to avoid any kind of discomfort or opposition from others in my beliefs at all costs. I'm just being honest. Maybe I'm the only person here in the room. But you know, if it's going to happen, as Jesus says, it may as well be worth it. Amen? Amen? So let's talk this morning about how you and I can be people who are persecuted. I'm kidding. But Jesus says this is a reality. It's going to happen. So it may as well be worth it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness. Not persecuted because they have a really, really, really big mouth. Maybe. Persecuted because of righteousness. You know, just a couple weeks ago, we encountered this word. I mean, it's mentioned twice in the Beatitudes, righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And just like the word persecution, righteousness can have kind of its own range of meaning from person to person. In fact, a friend of mine once uh, told me that in her Christian upbringing, being righteous meant going to confession, not eating breakfast before communion, no meat on Fridays during Lent. I mean, that's what a person who is righteous looked like. Uh, I know for my my mom and dad, who grew up in a very rural place and very conservative Baptist homes, they would say, oh, being righteous is no smoking, drinking, or swearing. That doesn't apply to anybody here in Washington State, does it? Just kidding. 
It's a little rougher crowd out here in the West. That's all I'm trying to say. But around Seattle, if you ask somebody, what's a righteous person look like? They might say, oh, it's someone who lowers their carbon footprint, chooses products that are sustainable, promotes tolerance. That's what righteousness looks like. But according to Jesus, righteousness isn't just a spiritual accomplishment. He's not saying, blessed are you because of your moral perfection. He's not saying that you should hunger and thirst for keeping all the rules. He didn't say, blessed are the righteous. You know, being right isn't what Jesus is emphasizing here. It's righteousness. And righteousness has to do with our relationships. First with God, then with others in our life. And so this word, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, righteousness can also be translated justice. It has to do with attitudes and our behavior, not with just being right, but doing right. It's what God requires of his people. He desires righteousness because it affects us and everyone in our lives. So a helpful way to think of righteousness, this thing that we're going to get persecuted for doing, is right-relatedness. We're rightly related to God, and by, it's not trickle-down, but it's almost like this starts to filter down into the rest of our life. The right-relatedness, the relationship that we have with, the growing connectedness that we have with God starts to get expressed and pressed down into all of our relationships. And so as this internal change starts to happen, all of these beatitudes start to kick in. You know, it's the poor in spirit, the people who feel like we got nothing in the God department. We need him. We start to feel this filter down into it as we mourn for all that's broken and lost in our world and for the people, maybe even ourselves who feel broken and lost. We summon the strength to be gentle and meek. We extend mercy to those in need, even to people who don't deserve it. And all of a sudden we start to realize, wow, I can't believe I'm able to do this because of that Holy Spirit transformation that's happening at a deep, deep level inside our soul. And so all of this impacts our relationships, the rest of our world. You know, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, this thing Jesus says you might get persecuted for, for righteousness and justice, it means that it bugs us when we see racism or sexism in the world around us. That's not the world God created. It bugs us when we hear and see things like, you know, sex trafficking it just seems horribly, horrifically wrong to us. It bugs us when we see the powerful use their influence to cover up crimes or whatever it is that they're doing to take advantage of others. It bugs us when we see unfavorable laws and practices that hurt the poor. But these are the exact kind of things that bring us into conflict with others. And so Jesus starts to describe those who see all that's broken in themselves and in their world. And if you've decided to follow Jesus, if the gospel is starting to take root in you, these qualities start blooming in your life. And when that happens, Jesus says, don't be surprised if other people don't applaud. If other people look at the person that you're becoming or maybe the things that you're starting to find a voice for, or take a stand against. Don't be surprised if you're misunderstood, made fun of, 
criticized, ignored. I mean, people are going to think you're a special kind of weird. And for someone like me who craves the approval of others, that's really difficult. It's really difficult to hear Jesus say, hey, you know, this might not make you popular following me. And from God's vantage point, I'm blessed. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You see, insults and persecutions aren't only the result of trying to do what's right, persecuted because of righteousness. Here, Jesus follows it up and says, they're going to do that because of me. Persecution comes because of Jesus. I'm always a little nervous to talk about this one because I'm worried that someone is going to take it as a license to be just really, really obnoxious. You know, if I just get out there with my Jesus t-shirt and my tattoos and I just talk really obnoxiously about Jesus, then of course I'm going to get flack for that or I'm going to feel opposition. And, you know, I'm always worried that if I talk about that, like someone's actually going to do it. But, you know, I don't think that's really the danger. I think for most of us, we kind of want to make as few waves as possible as it relates to our faith in Christ. And that's the danger. That's the danger. I like the idea that we would let our actions do the talking. That's a must. But we still actually have to talk about our faith in Jesus. And that comes with a risk. People might tune us out. Lucky for us, because that risk in other parts of the world would mean something much, much, much worse. You know, you can talk about God all you want with most people, but the second you mention Jesus, that's the make or break moment, isn't it? Will the conversation keep going? Will the conversation deepen or will it be over? And this morning I want to encourage you, and myself too, don't avoid those moments. Those are the tingly moments where you just say a quick prayer to the Holy Spirit and enter in. And I don't think most of us, I have to worry that you're going to be too obnoxious about it. I'm actually more worried for myself that I'm going to be too subtle about it. But these moments tell us a lot about someone's spiritual temperature, especially my own. People may say all sorts of false things about us because of Jesus. Maybe that's why the apostles instructed Christians over and over and over again to pursue things like this. Hospitality. You know, Romans 12, put it on the screen. There's this long list at the ends of Romans 12. Verses 13 says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. And then it says, practice hospitality. So that word practice is the same word that's translated as persecuted in the passage from this morning. So sometimes in this passage, we would say, oh, pursue hospitality. The next verse, 14, immediately practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless 
and do not curse. Paul's plan with words here. I don't know that I can do that, Paul. Pursue hospitality and bless those who are pursuing me instead of cursing me. I don't know that I want to do that. I would rather throw rocks at those people. I'd rather defend myself. I'd rather stand up to them. What's this mean, Jesus? Over and over again, the New Testament encourages followers of Jesus to practice or pursue hospitality, mutual peace, holiness, love, doing good, righteousness. So instead of drawing attention to ourselves for all the wrong reasons, it's like, The Apostle Paul, the disciples Jesus, were saying, get notice for these qualities instead. Get notice for this stuff instead. It may not make much of a difference. You may get persecuted anyway, but we're expecting that, aren't we? Jesus told his disciples in John 15, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. You belong to me is what Jesus is saying. I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. It's just a reality check. Not going to be smooth sailing going to have some really turbulent, anxious moments. Expect people to mess with you. Yes, to misunderstand you, to look down on you. Scott McKnight, a Bible scholar and author, he said, the persecutor are those who seek God, seek God's will in spite of what others want, who love God so much that they are faithful to God when oppressed, who follow Jesus so unreservedly they suffer for him, Inherent in persecution, then, are both the love of God and the denial of self. It's just like he's saying, pick up your cross and follow me, guys. It may not be pretty, but I'm with you. See, it's in these moments where we feel a little uncomfortable, or maybe we do get passed over for that promotion because of something, or maybe we get looked over Because of our faith. I don't know what it is. It's in those moments that we remember Christ himself is with us. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to persecution. In 1 Corinthians, he tells them this. He says, we work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth the garbage of the world right up to this moment. You know, most therapists would probably look at this and read this and go, Paul, you need some, like, counseling, right? But it all filters, it all comes under this category of what do we expect? What do we expect when we choose to surrender all, when we choose Jesus? We leave all those expectations behind at the door. And we receive this blessed new life, 
this gift of eternal life, but this life, the, the power of the Holy Spirit inside us, transforming us right here and right now, ourselves, our families, those around us. We see the kingdom of God at work around us. Sometimes there's going to be lots and lots and lots of opposition to that. But it's God's strength and love that helps us persevere. A favorite passage of mine, Romans 8. Often, you know, I'm, I'm sure if you've been around the church at all for any length of time, you've probably heard this. But it's especially appropriate for us this morning. Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are made more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No matter what, Christ is with us. I really, 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 really hope it's smooth sailing in my life and yours too. But realistically, if I'm choosing the smooth sailing over the adventure and the hardship and the presence of Christ, smooth sailing ain't worth it. Trouble, hardship, persecution, whatever it may be, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And we as his followers can do hard things, all things in fact, through him who strengthens us. Amen? Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for this encouragement. Thank you for your presence. And I don't say that lightly. Because without you, our life is found really empty. And so you don't promise us an easy go of it. You actually tell us to expect some hardship, Lord. But because you are with us, we can persevere. We have hope. We're loved. So help us. We are very... Um, what that is it's the Holy Spirit right we like to avoid pain we like things comfortable we like to be approved help us Lord to overcome those temptations and choose you we pray this in your powerful name amen well this morning we get to celebrate the Lord's communion together. 
And come to this sacred table not because you must, but because you may. Not to make a statement about how righteous or religious you are, but to state that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ, that you desire his presence. And this is open for anyone who puts your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that a person who desires to follow him as the leader of your life, it's open to all who repent of their sins and who would be delivered from them, and all who would walk in love with their neighbor and intend to live a new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're invited to this table. So as we prepare ourselves as persons and also as a group of people, I invite you to take a moment of silent confession and prayer to ready your hearts. Please take a moment and do so now. Lord, we know that you are faithful and just and that we confess our sins before you. You hear us, cleanse us, forgive us. So we pray that you would do your work in us this morning. In your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to invite those of you that are helping serve uh, this this morning to come forward. And uh, how this works, uh, I'll share the words of institution here in just a moment. You can find your way in line. Come forward and take one of these wafers. It's the body of Christ broken for you and dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ shed for you. Please hear the words of institution. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.